Today's scripture reading is taken from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 36. And then I'm also going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And this is God's word. We receive here in this account a vivid picture with a clear explanation of who Jesus is and what it really means to follow him. A very clear picture and a very clear illustration. I had a professor who would draw a U on the overhead projector during class. And he called it the Upsilon Vector. The upsilon is just the, it's the Greek 
it's the Greek letter U, okay? And he called it the upsilon vector, and he would, he would say this. He would use the letter U to, to talk about the nature of the way things are in life. He said, in order to succeed, you have to sacrifice. In order to achieve victory, in some way, you have to suffer loss. You have to go down into the depths of your experience and suffer and endure pain in order to accomplish what you need to accomplish. No pain, no gain. And he would say that's kind of the way life works. Uh, When I wanted to become a musician, I had to spend years basically suffering, (laughs) Um, saying no to video games some of the time. Um, Saying no to being outside some of the time. Saying no to hanging out with friends. I had to work and work and work and work and make certain sacrifices and endure certain types of pain in order to get to a point of proficiency with music. You may know what that's like with athletics or with getting into shape or with going on a diet, right? No pain, no gain. In order to experience a good friendship with somebody, you have to make sacrifices. You have to put their needs above your own needs. You have to stop talking once in a while and lay aside your agenda and listen to the other person and be more interested in understanding what they have to say rather than communicating what you want to say. Marriage works that way as well. Victory can only come through some form of going into the depths, suffering, and then coming out of it. And so my professor would call it the upsilon vector. There's a truth to this in the passage we see today. And in Christianity itself, following Jesus requires that we embrace his suffering and our own. Do you want to have true peace in your life, in your relationships. Peace with yourself. Do you want to experience real love? Do you want to know beauty? Do you want to know what it truly means to be a strong person? Do you want to have joy in your life? Do you want to truly live? Well, the only way to win is to lose. And the only way to have true life is first to lose it. Now, that really is the economy of Christianity. That's how it works. And for the person who is considering what it would mean to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, and for the Christian who is considering what does it mean to continue to follow Jesus. This is a truth that we need to wrestle with today. The only way to win is to lose. The only way up is down. The only way to have life is to first lose life. I actually even think Willy Wonka said something like this. He said, the only way forward is backward. Now, two remarkable things take place in this account as Jesus and his disciples are in the area of Caesarea Philippi. 
first thing is that Peter makes this remarkable confession in chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus says to his disciples, look, who do you think I am? Everybody has their opinion. The word's gotten out. Herod knows about me. The Romans know about me. People have heard about me. What do you guys think? Who do you think I am? Never mind the rumors. What do you have to say? You know me the most. And Peter says, you are the Christ. And what Peter meant by that word Christ was, you are the anointed one. You are the descendant of King David, the Messiah, who is to come to restore Israel and to restore all things. You're what Israel has prayed for and hoped for for centuries. You are the Christ. Now, this statement is the first of two pillar statements that hold up the entire story of Mark's gospel. The second statement is going to be made much later on in the story by a Gentile. But the first statement, the first declaration of Jesus' true identity is made by Peter. You are the Christ. Now, finally, the disciples seem to begin to understand who Jesus of Nazareth really is. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the promised Christ, God's Messiah. And something else remarkable takes place in this passage, the transfiguration, which, which if you were to translate the Greek word, it simply means to change form. So Jesus has a literal form change. And for a brief moment, these three disciples, for whatever reason, the disciples that Jesus um, uh, drew to himself more than the others, these three, Peter and James and John, for a brief moment, these three see the veil of Jesus's humanity lifted. And for an amazing moment, they see Jesus in some form of his pure true, eternal glory and majesty. The glory that he had with God the Father and God the Spirit before the universe existed. And before he became a human being, conceived in the woman Mary. This is Jesus as he truly is. And for a moment they get a glimpse of it and they were terrified by what they saw. And they also see two people show up. Moses and Elijah show up. And they're there hanging out with Jesus. Now, this is significant. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham? And why not David? Well, Moses was the great Old Testament prophet who gave Israel the law. And Moses said to the Israelites, God's going to send you another prophet. And you need to listen to him when he comes. Now, Elijah was the quintessential Old Testament miracle worker. Elijah is, you know, Elijah is is the main dude. He, Elijah is, is, if there was a dictionary for the Jews and, and you looked up the word prophet, you would see Elijah's picture there. The Jews just loved Elijah and the Jews, the Jew knew, the Jews knew that an Elijah-like prophet would have to first come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And we understand that to be John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin. So it's very significant that appearing next to Jesus in this amazing, amazing incident are Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets finding their fulfillment in God's Christ. 
and they were terrified by the majesty and the glory that they saw in this carpenter that they had been following around for quite a while now. So Peter, in his delirium, makes a suggestion. Hey, Lord, maybe we should set up some tents. A tent for you, a tent for Moses, and a tent for Elijah. Now, he wasn't totally out of his mind. This makes sense. He's not saying, let's go camping. Think about it. Who, who, dwelt, who, who dwelt in a tent with the Israelites when they wandered around in the wilderness in ancient times? God, God's presence dwelt in a tent. The tabernacle was a tent. So what Peter's saying is, Lord, let's make this a holy place. But Jesus had other plans. Jesus reveals a remarkable paradox. So there's Peter's remarkable confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then there is this remarkable transfiguration right before their eyes. But then in the context of what's taking place in this section of Mark's gospel, we now see a remarkable revelation. And it's a paradox. The glorious Christ must suffer and even die. It's through suffering and death that Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. And if you were Peter and you were James and you were John and you were part of the 12 and you were in Jesus's inner circle, this would be a horrible prospect after such a glorious revelation. One commentator put it this way. Why does Jesus pop the balloon, ruin the party at such an amazing moment with such foreboding news about why he had come and what he was preparing to do? And one commentator puts it this way. They needed at that very moment when they understood that Jesus was truly the Christ, when they saw him, when they saw him in his true glory and majesty, they had to know right at that moment that he was God's Christ. And he was, he was not their Christ. He had come to do what God planned for him to do. He had not come to do what they had planned for him to do. He was not going to participate in their expectations of what it meant for the Messiah to come. He wasn't their Christ. He was God's Christ. And they needed to understand that immediately. He wasn't there to restore Israel's political strength or Israel's national freedom, as Steve mentioned earlier to the kids. He had come to atone for Israel's sin. He had come to atone for the sins of the world. They weren't ready to hear that. But as the prophet Isaiah centuries before said to them, and we read this earlier in Isaiah 53, with his wounds, we are healed. And he basically goes on to say in two places in this account that if you're going to associate with me, suffering is going to be your path. In one form or another, small or great, if you're going to associate with me, your path will be marked with suffering and struggle, maybe even with your own physical, biological death. This is the essence of following Jesus. In verses 34 and 35 of chapter 8, he says, and this sums it all up, if anyone would come after me, meaning if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, hold on a second. When we think of a cross, 
It's a religious symbol to us. When these guys thought of a cross, they thought of a Roman torture device. When these guys thought of a a cross, it would be like you and I thinking of the electric chair. It would be like you and I thinking of lethal injection in a state penitentiary. Okay? That's what they're thinking of culturally. So he says to them, if you're going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And hear this, folks, is the essence of following Jesus. You die to yourself. And he doesn't mean biological death, although that may come as a result of dying to yourself. What he means by dying to yourself, what he means by taking up your cross, right, by considering yourself a dead man walking in this life, he means dying to life as you know it. Dying to your comfort. Dying to your agenda. Dying to your expectations of what the world is and what your life should look like. And so he rebukes Peter. Now, if you want proof that the Bible wasn't written by people who wanted themselves to look good, Peter's situation here is a great example the ancients, the ancients would embellish their histories to make themselves look better than they really were. When you read the Bible, the Bible was written by church leaders who were self-deprecating. Right? Peter does not look like a hero. Right? Scholars, scholars have some belief that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. That Mark wrote this gospel under the guidance and, and discipleship of Peter himself in Rome. Peter doesn't look like a hero here. Now, Peter first rebukes Jesus for basically talking such nonsense. And Matthew's gospel records the same incident, but adds some more detail that Mark leaves out. In Matthew's gospel, you hear Peter say, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Lord, what are you talking about? Listen. You stick with us. We are not going to let this happen to you. We will never let this happen to you. This is not how you're going to go down. We're going to get through this somehow. Peter would prove it later because he would cut off a guy's ear in order to protect Jesus. But Jesus rebukes him in verse 33, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And if you read closely, you notice that he's talking to all of the disciples, not just Peter. Peter was the ringleader. But he says to all of them, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let me ask you a question right now. Why do you think Jesus spoke so harshly to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What do you think? It was harsh, but it was truth, and he had to hear it. Okay. Somebody else, yeah. Like, 
So you, you're, you're, you're remembering the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness after his initial baptism when Satan came to him and tempted him in many ways to basically accomplish his mission without having to suffer, without having to humble himself, right? Um, and, and that's good. That, that's called, scholars call that biblical theology, which is, which is, it's the discipline of take, getting a theme, taking a theme and tracing it through the Bible. And that's what you're doing. That's biblical theology. Where have we seen this before? Oh, Satan once tempted Jesus to try and take the kingdom by force without having to suffer and go through hell, basically. Right? And Jesus said, no way. That's not, that's not how this is going to go. And so Peter doesn't know what he's doing. No, Lord, you don't ha- it doesn't have to happen this way. And so I think you're exactly right. I think the man Jesus was reminded of what Satan had done before. Was there another hand? Yeah. Maybe Satan's best tool is using this idea that um, the Messiah is to come to restore them, uh, to cast off the shackles of Rome and, and Herod the weasel and uh, rein, reinstate Israel um, in its former glory and freedom, and, and, which is a half-truth. It's not a total lie if you read the Old Testament, but it's only half of the picture. And so Satan can take truth and twist it and... and he did that in the garden with Adam and Eve, and the rest is history. That's a good point. Man, I lost my notes. Where the heck am I? What were we talking about? Why did Jesus speak so harshly? I, you know, I walked away from my notes, and now I'm like, I'm coming back. I'm like, where, where in the world are we? Just give me one second. I'll find myself again. Where's that? Oh, there it is. Yeah, okay. I wanted to bring up another point about this. Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan, right? It's not that Satan's possessed. I'm sorry. He is kind of possessed with himself. It's not that Peter was possessed by Satan, okay? Um, Satan is God's quintessential adversary. Actually, the word Satan means adversary, okay? So Satan is God's adversary again and again. He is opposed to everything about God. He's opposed to who God is, to what God stands for, and to what God is doing in history and in the Bible. And so what we have here is Peter, even though Peter loved Jesus and even believed that he would give up his own life for Jesus, Peter makes a statement that is completely opposed to everything that Jesus stands for and everything that Jesus is going to do. And what the Bible explains is that Satan works very hard in the world, in history, in culture, in politics, in relationships, to help us, in a sense, to distract us from who God truly is and what is, what is his mission. Right? And so Jesus hears Peter say something that is inherently opposed to who he is, what he stands for, and what he's going to do. And Jesus knows where it's coming from. It's coming from Satan who works through the world and through culture and through our own sinful nature 
to basically change our expectations so that when we really hear what God's about, we want nothing to do with it. C.S. Lewis had some insight about this, and he wrote, he wrote a book. It was a fantasy called The Screwtape Letters. And, and in The Screwtape Letters, uh, there's, this, there's this demon named Screwtape, and he has a nephew named Wormwood. And the book, The Screwtape Letters, is, is, it's a bunch of correspondences between this old demon and, and his nephew, Wormwood. And Wormwood is assigned to a human being who had just become a Christian. And, and hearing that, and, and, and the Christian is called the patient, okay? And Uncle, Uncle Screwtape writes a letter to his nephew Wormwood about this patient because he hears that the patient had just become a Christian. And, and this is what Uncle Screwtape says to Wormwood about how he can, even though this, this patient has just become a Christian, how he could try and mess things up for the patient. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy, now when, when a demon says the enemy, he means God, okay? The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. And then the old demon goes on to explain to his nephew that the enemy, God's goal in all of this disappointment is to create free, mature human beings who can stand on their own and trust him. And the, and the, and the great old demon goes on to say, and there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. Somebody once told me that the further apart our expectations are from reality, the more frustrated we will be. The farther away your expectations about life and about yourself and about God are from reality as God knows it, the greater your frustration will be. And we can apply that to Peter and to the disciples. They had their expectation of the Messiah. Jesus lays down the reality of the Messiah. And what's left is confusion to the point where now Peter speaks in such a way as to completely oppose what his master is all about. And that's what Satan is all about. And that's what sin is all about. So I want you to consider this. Ask yourself, what am I afraid I will lose if I'm willing to trust Jesus, really trust Jesus on his terms? What am I afraid of losing? Or ask yourself, what would I be ashamed of becoming if I truly trust Jesus? 
If I follow Jesus on his terms, what am I ashamed I will become? It's hard to see beauty in suffering, isn't it? It's hard to see strength in what appears to be weakness. And that's because our standards for what strength is and what beauty is are completely off. Our expectations and our standards for what beauty is and what strength is and what real power is are influenced by the world, are influenced by what the Bible calls our sinful nature. And Satan, according to Scripture, is just up there pulling the strings of your life and pulling on the puppet strings of culture and government and society to get us off the mark so that our expectations are not God's reality. And our response is very much like Peter. No way. Lord, that will never happen to you. And you know what I think? Peter did not want Jesus to suffer because Peter didn't want Peter to suffer. I was very much like Peter, and you've heard this story before if you've been around here long enough. I was following Jesus as a young man, but I was trying to follow Jesus on my own terms. I was afraid of losing my ambition. And my ambition to become successful in what I was doing was really a way of using success as a tool of revenge to get back at certain people in my life who thought little of me. And so following Jesus on my terms meant I could call myself a Christian but still hold on to my ambition for revenge and success. But following Jesus on Jesus' terms meant I had to die to life as I knew it. I had to die to needing success to feel like I was somebody. What does following Jesus on his terms mean that you might have to lose? I was ashamed of becoming what I thought was a weak, lame person. And you know, part of my testimony was I'll never be a pastor because that's the, that's the most lame, weak profession I could ever think of. That will never happen to me. No thanks. Right? And then God's sense of humor is here I stand today. Um, but if we're afraid of loss and if we're ashamed of who we might become, We'll either reject Jesus completely or we'll follow him on our own terms, which is not following him at all, according to what Jesus says to Peter and his disciples. But faith, this is the difference. This is what happened to me. God gave me the gift of faith. And faith trusts that God will redeem your suffering because he redeemed Christ's suffering. That's how we know. That's how we know that suffering ultimately finds redemption through Christ. Because his suffering came about redemption. It was because Christ suffered that you too will suffer if you are a Christian. But because Christ's suffering led to his victory, your suffering in Christ for his sake and for the sake of his gospel will also lead to victory. I lost my ambition. And I lost many other things along the way. I, I lost my brother. I watched my brother die eight years ago. And since then, I've had to battle cancer twice. 
And I've lost many other things, and you've lost many other things. But I will tell you this, with every loss that I have given up for Christ, I have become more alive. And I can promise you that I would not be here with you today doing what we're doing here in Westminster if I had not lost these things. It is because I lost these things and was willing to give them up that I'm here today. And I believe that some of you are here today because you have willingly lost things for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his gospel. And some of you are afraid to lose yourself, to gain everything that God is promising you. The Apostle Paul, man, the Apostle Paul was an impressive guy. He was a jerk, but he was an impressive guy. And then he met Jesus, and this is what he said as a result of becoming a Christian. Whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let me pause in this reading for a second. This is why, this is why we are not willing to follow Christ on his terms. Because we are each left to our own devices as human beings trying to set up our own righteousness before God. And if you're trying to set up your own worth and your own righteousness before your creator, you'll never listen to Jesus. Because his way is you have to trust in his righteousness and not in your own. And so Paul says he was able to get rid of his attempts to build up and establish his own righteousness before God. And faith is trusting in Jesus' righteousness. And that's what Peter was not yet willing to do. And so he said, no, Lord, you're not going to die. Because deep down, Peter was still trusting in his own righteousness. Paul would go on to say, he wants to be found in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There it is again. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians chapter 3. Jack and Rosemary Miller were, among many things, they were missionaries. They, they since have, have gone on uh, to be with Christ. Uh, but amongst many other things, Jack and Rosemary Miller were missionaries. And what they discovered on the mission field and, and as a professor... Uh, Jack was a professor, and they were both authors. They were parents, and, and in their marriage, uh, in all these different ways of life, they discovered that for the Christian, you either have to take risks of faith or you will rust. So they would say, in the Lord, you either risk or you rust. And I think we have to admit that while we may be good Americans... We are lousy Christians who are unwilling to suffer loss and shame for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. Unwilling. 
to take risks of faith because of what we're afraid we will lose and a fear of what we may become and how people will view us and regard us if we die to ourselves. But Jack and Rosemary Miller would go on to say this. No one is out to rob you of anything worthwhile. The things that you are afraid of losing are not, are not worth keeping in the end. Nobody can take anything away from you that God has for you. And so the Millers would go on to say, take risks. If you want to follow Jesus in faith, take risks. Don't just stand there. Go and die. Risk and you'll never rust. And that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. The only way to win is to lose. And the only way to have life, truly have life, is first to lose it. We sang a song earlier today. And in that song, in the first song, we sang these words. This is amazing love that you would bear my cross. Okay? Now, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. Okay? Now, there, there are crosses that Jesus wants you to bear. There are burdens that for his sake, he's asking you to carry in this life. And through those burdens and through the suffering of those burdens, you will achieve in him the victory that he has planned for you to achieve. But there's one burden that he never intended you to carry because you can't. And it's the burden that he carried. There's one cross that you deserved to hang on. And Jesus took that cross upon himself because he knew you could never carry it. He knew you couldn't hang there, although you deserve to. He took the cross that did not belong to him and he made it his own. And through that apparent defeat, Jesus accomplished victory for you. That's why he had to suffer. That's why he had to die. So trust in faith. And if you don't have it, ask God for the faith. To trust that he will redeem your struggles and your sufferings because he redeemed Christ's suffering and Christ's struggle. That's the source of the hope we have. That on the cross, what was ugly became beautiful. And what appeared to be weak and nothing became what is powerful. And what fills the entire universe with the truth and light and love and hope of our creator. So ask God for the faith to trust that he will redeem your suffering because he redeemed Christ's suffering. May we have faith to trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ carried our cross, the cross we truly deserve. Now help us for his sake in love and thanks and appreciation to him to carry the small crosses of our lives where we learn how he suffered by our own suffering, where we draw close to him, where we attain the resurrection from the dead that he attained himself as we trust him in his suffering. We praise you that as he suffered and rose from the dead, even we who suffer through him and in him, trusting him, will also have eternal life. Lord, I pray that a knowledge of this truth would expand in our lives and would expand in this community. For your sake, amen.